from 2 Kings, sorry, 1 Kings, um, 22:51. Isaiah, son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jeshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned over two years. He reigned over Israel two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord because he walked in ways his father and his mother of his father and his mother and in the ways of Jeroboam son of Nebat who caused Israel to sin. He served and worshiped Baal and provoked the Lord the God of Israel to anger just as his father had done. After Ahab's death Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Isaiah had fallen through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and injured himself. So he sent a messenger saying to them, Go and consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, to see if I will recover from this injury. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going off to consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You will, ne- you will not leave the bed you are leaving, lying in. You will certainly die. So Elijah went. When the messengers returned to the king, he asked them, Why have you come back? A man came to meet us, they replied. And he said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and tell him. This is what the Lord says. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending men to consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. The king asked them, What kind of man was it who came to meet you and told you this? They replied, He was a man with garment of hair with a leather belt around his waist. The king said, That was Elijah the Tishbite. Then he sent to Elijah a captain with his company of fifty men. The captain went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, Man of God, the king says, Come down. Elijah answered the captain, If I, a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. Then fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and his men. At this the king sent to Elijah another captain with with his fifty men. The captain said to him, Man of God, this is what the king says, come down at once. If I am man of God, Elijah replied, may fire, of, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. Then the fire of God fell from heaven and consumed him and his fifty men. So the king sent a third captain with his fifty men. The third captain went up and fell on his knees before Elijah. Man of God, he begged, please have respect for my life and the lives of these fifty men, your servants. See, fire has fallen from heaven and consumed the first two captains and all their men. But now have respect for my life. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him, do not be afraid of him. So Elijah got up and went down with him to the king. He told the king, This is what the Lord says. It is because... Is it because there is no God in Israel for you to consult that you have sent messengers to consult Baal-zebub, the king of Ekron? Because you have done this, you will never leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. 
because Uzziah had no son, Joram succeeded him as king in the second year of Joram, son of Jeshaphat, king of Judah. As for all other events of Uzziah's reign and what he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of of the king of Israel? But before we come to God's word, let's bow in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We pray now that you would settle our minds, settle our hearts, that uh, you would grant us uh, spiritual uh, insight and understanding, that uh, in hearing and uh, obeying your word, that we would uh, grow in closeness uh, in terms of our affection for you and our obedience to you and our trust in you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are some parts of the Bible that some people find it hard to stomach. Let me give you a few examples of that. Uh, A a king sends 50 of his troops in order to arrest uh, a prophet of God. And uh, when they find their man, the prophet uh, prays and God sends fire from the sky that burns the 50 men plus their commander to a crisp. And then God does it again to another 50 men and their commander. And you think to yourself, I mean, why would God do that? They're only doing their job. They're only following orders. And now they're ash. Well, think about this one. A prophet of God is walking along the road one day and he meets up with a a group of uh, young people, a large group of young people, and they start picking on him because he's bald. They say, hey, baldy, (laughs) go on up there, hey, baldy. And the prophet turns to them and he curses them. And God causes two ferocious bears to enter the scene and to tear them apart. And you think to yourself, what's going on here? I mean, those guys, they were just having a bit of fun. Boys will be boys. Can't the prophet take a joke? Can't God take a joke? It sounds like God is unfair, doesn't it? It sounds like God overreacts. And there are other parts of the Bible that are like this. I wonder if you can think of other stories in the Bible that maybe make us feel a bit uncomfortable. Perhaps uh, Ananias and Sapphira and uh, what happened to them. What do we make of parts of the Bible that are like this? How should we understand the hard passages Uh, There are some folk who would say, well, these passages give evidence that uh, what we have recorded in the Bible is really not true, that it's just fables. Uh, There are others who say, well, let's just skip those passages, particularly let's skip the Old Testament passages, those Old Testament passages which are about where there's violence, where there's death where there's judgment and so on and you know let's just read about the God of the New Testament 
who's all about love and forgiveness and kindness. Let's just focus on the Sermon on the Mount. What do we make of these hard passages? How are we to treat them? Today we come to the part of the Bible which records the two incidences about the prophet. And we read about these two incidences in 2 Kings chapters 1 and chapter 2. But before we launch into that, I want us to backtrack a little bit. I don't know about you, but my memory often needs to be jogged. And I want to kind of talk about where we're up to in the preaching and where we've come from in order to put things into context a little bit. Some of you may remember that in February and March of last year that we did a series of sermons on One Kings. I don't know what you remember of that, but I wanted to just recap some of One Kings for you. There is a summary of One Kings in your service sheets today. But basically, One Kings told the story of the nation of Israel from the time of the death of King David. Do you remember that? The, um, David was, uh, uh, was on his deathbed and um, uh, it was, it, it, one king started that way and what we had from there was really a very important time in Israel's history. Uh, the nation became fabulously successful during the reign of David's son, King Solomon. But uh, Solomon, well, his heart grew a bit lukewarm to God, didn't it? Remember that uh, in Deuteronomy that there were three things which the godly king must not do. He must not marry uh, many foreign wives. He must not accumulate gold and silver for himself. And he must not accumulate uh, horses from Egypt. And Solomon did all three of those things. And particularly his wives turned his heart away from God as uh, they worshipped their false gods. And after after Solomon, the great kingdom of Israel split, didn't it? Do you remember what happened? Solomon's son was Rehoboam. And the uh, people came to Rehoboam and said, Hey, your dad taxed us really, really heavily. Do you think you could lighten loosen up on the whole taxation thing and uh, Rehoboam uh, went to the older advisors and they said look if you give into the people now they'll love you he went to his young mates that he went to school with and they said well no no show them who's boss and he showed them who's boss and it was a rebellion man by the name of Jeroboam uh, led 10 of the tribes 10 northern tribes to split and to form a new kingdom which became known as the kingdom of Israel, whereas the southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, remained loyal to Rehoboam and uh, they became the kingdom of Judah. But the kingdom was split and the kingdom became very weak, the two kingdoms. Um, At the end of 1 Kings, the northern kingdom of Israel was ruled by an ungodly king by the name of Ahab and his uh, not-so-lovely uh, wife, Jezebel. Right? And uh, we read about their rule. 
But we also learnt that God's voice continued in the northern kingdom because God sent a prophet by the name of Elijah, uh, a man who was prepared to confront uh, kingly authority and to speak God's word fearlessly in the context of ungodliness. And so we saw the demise of the kingdom during that period of time. Now that was one kings. Two kings is actually just part B of the same story. Originally, uh, one and two kings were just the book of kings, but uh, at one point in history, uh, they were written on two scrolls and it became one kings and two kings. I wonder if you can open up your Bibles if you haven't got them open already at page 259 uh, as we look at 2 Kings chapter 1. And it starts with the new king. Ahab had been killed. He died in battle because <clears throat> as judgment for what he did to a man by the name of Naboth. Remember Naboth, the, the guy that had the vineyard? And Ahab had his eyes on the vineyard and Naboth wouldn't sell it to him. So Jezebel organised for some false accusations to be made against Naboth and he was... Remember that? Right, so, so uh, uh, because of that, uh, he was punished by being killed in battle by God. And now his son, his son Ahaziah, is now sitting on the throne. And so the question is, well, what sort of a king would Ahaziah be? Well, that's what 2 Kings chapter 1 is all about. So let's have a look at that. Uh, in verse 2, we're told that Ahaziah had a serious injury. Uh, he was sitting, well, he was in the upstairs room of his palace, which was in Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom. And uh, somehow or another, he fell out of a lattice window maybe leaned up against this lattice. They didn't have glass panes in those days. Leaned up against the, uh, the lattice on the window and off he went. Uh, he fell down and you can imagine he would have injured himself uh, quite significantly doing that. And so he wanted to know whether or not he would recover from his injury. He wanted some knowledge, some divine knowledge. Now that's fair enough. He is the king of Israel. Israel are God's people. It is right for God's king, the king of God's people, to consult God. But is that what Ahaziah did? Did he consult God? No, he didn't. Uh, in verse 2, we're told that he totally ignored God. And he sent messengers to consult Baalzebub. Baalzebub is the, uh, the god of the Philistines. Baalzebub, by the way, means lord of the flies. He sent some messengers to consult Baalzebub to see if the priests of Baalzebub would tell him whether or not he was actually going to survive his injuries. And so off went those messengers. But God had his messenger as well. And God sent a messenger to Elijah in verse 3. And Elijah was told to go out and meet the king's messengers and to put a question to them. The question is this, and I want you to focus on this question. The question is this. 
Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going off to consult Baalzebub, the God of Ekron? And that's the question that Elijah puts to the messengers from the king. And then the Lord himself answered the king's question about whether or not he would recover. See the answer to the question? He says, you will not leave the bed you are lying on, you will certainly die. Now that was not the news that the king was hoping for. And so in verse 9, he sent a detachment of a commander plus 50 soldiers to go and arrest Elijah. When they met up with Elijah, Elijah said to them, if I am a man of God, then may fire fall down from heaven and consume you. And it did. Then the king sent out a second detachment of soldiers to arrest Elijah. And they were burnt to a crisp crisp as well. And then in verse 13, a third detachment of soldiers were sent, but their commander had the common sense to beg Elijah for mercy and he and his men were spared. Elijah was told by God to go with them and Elijah delivered God's message to the king face to face. And in verse 17, the king died. Now, this is an event which has caused some people to be outraged. Uh, They are outraged because it looks like God has overreacted. They are outraged because they consider it to be unjust that God should have punished 102 soldiers in the way that he did. I want to suggest today uh, to you that this passage should cause us to be outraged. Uh, We should be angry. But we shouldn't be outraged at how God has treated people. We should be outraged at how people have treated God. Because after all, they were God's special people. Uh, God had chosen Israel. God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. God had made them into a nation. God had blessed them with a land. God had blessed them with his law. God had blessed them with his very presence, that he was their God. They were to be his people. And they knew that he truly was God. They knew that. I'm hearing a lot of ringing around here. Are you hearing that that as well? A lot of feedback? Okay, maybe it's just me. Okay, well, they knew that uh, Yahweh, the Lord, was the true God. Remember, remember the confrontation that... uh, Elijah had had with the 400 prophets of Baal. Uh, The idea was to determine once and for all who truly was Israel's God. Remember that? Up on Mount Carmel, that uh, the prophets of Baal were invited to establish their altar, to put their sacrifice on it and to see if it would uh, set on fire without a match being lit. And they prayed and they danced and they marched around it day and night. Nothing happened. Then Elijah 
uh, built his altar, put his sacrifice on it, called on the name of the Lord after dousting it with water, and the whole fire came down from heaven and just exploded the whole thing. Now, this was the generation of people who had seen that. They had been there. They had witnessed that clear demonstration that Yahweh, the Lord, is God. And yet, the king chose to ignore all of that. Notice that the reason he died was not because he fell out the window. The reason that he died was because he chose to consult Baalzebub rather than turning to God. Now, the soldiers were also guilty. Uh, Think about it. When they were ordered to arrest God's prophet, what were the options that were open to them? Well, they could have disobeyed the king, couldn't they? They could have said, no, we're not going to touch the prophet of God. They could have decided that, uh, and they had a a spiritual responsibility to obey the Lord of the universe and to respect and to honour him at the expense of obeying and respecting and honouring their earthly king. But yet they chose to obey their king and to arrest God's prophet. Now, we might still feel some sympathy for the soldiers. And uh, I think part of the reason for that is that uh, we, I think, sometimes have too low a view of the holiness of God. Um, We tend to forget that God is actually the one who created the entire universe, uh, that God is the one who has made everything, that God is the one who gives every breath of life. I mean, do you think it's okay to worship an idol in place of the true God? Do you think it's okay to arrest God's prophet? Or does God deserve our complete honour our complete obedience, no matter the cost. But we say, well, what about God's mercy and forgiveness? And I think that's a good point because in chapter 2 we are reminded of just how merciful God has been towards Israel. Uh, We see it in the story of how Elijah's ministry finished. Now, uh, we didn't read chapter 2. Uh, when Ravinda gave the... She did a good reading, didn't she? Because there's some pretty complex Hebrew names in that passage. Uh, But let me just kind of summarise chapter 2 for you. Uh, Elijah had a colleague whose name was Elisha. We were introduced to Elisha in uh, 1 Kings. And in chapter 2, Elijah knew that God was about to finish his ministry. Uh, There are also godly prophets... Uh, in Israel at the time. It wasn't just Elijah and Elisha. Uh, In fact, there were some towns where there were entire groups of prophets that were living in those towns who had been faithful to God. In verse 2, God sent Elijah on a journey. Elisha insisted on coming with him. And they travelled from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho and then to the River Jordan. And along the the way, they met up with God's prophets who were living in those different towns. But the important thing, and what I want to focus on, 
is what happened when they got to the banks of the Jordan River. Uh, Let me read to you from chapter 2, verses 17 through to 14, and I'll stop along the way and make some comments. Everyone got that? Chapter 2, verse 7. So they're, they're down by the Jordan, the Jordan River. And it says, 50 men of the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? Now let's just focus on verses 7 to 8 for a moment. Uh, There are are two times, I wonder what it reminds you of. Uh, There are a couple of times in Israel's history where God had stopped the water from flowing, uh, where God had parted water uh, in order that the people of Israel could be able to cross on dry ground. What were those two Two, those, those two times that that happened in their history. What was the first one? Does anyone remember? It was the Exodus, wasn't it? It was when they uh, were being pursued by the Egyptians. They got to the Red Sea. Uh, there was no way of crossing it except that God split the waters and they walked across it. The Egyptians were not so blessed. But what it represents is God's salvation that God had rescued them from Egypt. What was the second time that they crossed over uh, water through the water having parted? The Jordan, that's right. Uh, Forty years later, when they were to enter into uh, the promised land and they got to the Jordan under the leadership of Moses' successor Joshua and the waters of the Jordan River parted so that Israel was able to cross into the promised land uh, over dry ground. And so what we're reminded of here uh, in this incident is the two great events uh, of Israel's history. Salvation from Egypt and entry into the promised land. Now, have a look at verses 9 and 10. In verse 9, when they'd crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I can do for you before I am taken from you. Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours, otherwise not. Now, uh, Elisha has asked for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. What's he asking for there? Uh, He's not asking that he would be twice as powerful as Elijah. Uh, It seems rather that what he's uh, he's invoking is uh, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 17, where the firstborn son... Uh, inherits a double portion of the father's estate. And so what he's asking for here 
is that he would be as Elijah's firstborn, that he would be the successor to Elijah. Elijah says, well, that's not up to me, but if you see me when I depart, then it will be yours. So he's leaving that to God. Verse 11. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them apart. He picked up the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak that had fallen from him and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left and he crossed over. And so we see here that Elisha actually saw the departure, didn't he? And he cried out to Elijah, my father, my father, as if he now is the son, the inheritor. And here we see also that in what is quite a dramatic uh, couple of verses in the Bible, that Elijah becomes one of only two men in the Old Testament who bypassed death, who went straight to heaven. Do you remember, by the way, who the other one was? Enoch in Genesis chapter 5, very mysterious. But Elijah and his specialness in God's sight is shown by his departure in quite miraculous, quite dramatic scenes. And so what we see in this section is that we are reminded that God has been very gracious to Israel, that he saved them from Egypt, that he gave them the land that they now enjoy, and we also see that Elisha is now the successor to Elijah. The king had failed to lead spiritually, but God's voice would not be silent. He would continue to speak through his representative, Elisha. Now, how would the people respond to Elisha? How would they treat him? Chapter 2 finishes with two stories. There is a good news story and there is a bad news story. Do you like good news and bad news stories? Did you hear about the doctor who phoned up his patient one day and said, I've got the test results back and I've got good news for you and I've got bad news? What do you want, which one do you want to hear first? The patient says, well, you better give me the good news first. That'll prepare me for the bad news. What's the good news, doc? And the doctor says, well, the good news is that the results, the results say that you've got 24 hours to live. The man says, it's truth. Is that, if that's the good news, what's the bad news? The doctor says, I, I forgot to phone you up yesterday to tell you. <laughs> it's good news, bad news. 
Now, there's a good news story here and there's a bad news. What do you want to hear first? I'm going to give you the bad news. I'll give you the good news story first. The good news is uh, a story of faith and healing. Uh, In verse 19, the water supply in Jericho had been contaminated. It It was bad. It was unproductive. We don't know why. It may have actually been part of a curse that was uh, placed upon that land for Israel's disobedience. But unlike the king who turned to Baal for help, who did the men of Jericho turn to for help? They turned to Elijah. They turned to God's prophet. They put their faith in God. And what was the result? Their land was healed. The water was healed. It's a story of faith. It's a story of healing. But the bad news is a story of sin and judgment. Uh, In verse 23, Elisha walked towards the the town of Bethel. Bethel, by the way, was the centre for uh, cultic worship. They actually set up a, a, um, a cow in Bethel and worshipped it. as it repugnant to God. So Elisha's heading towards Bethel when he's surrounded by a mob of, of young people. But instead of being like the men of Jericho who honoured God's prophet, they did not honour God's prophet. They mocked God's prophet. And so 42 of them were mauled by bears. It's one of those uncomfortable stories and some people do use this story to say that the Bible simply is not true. Uh, I have heard it said, uh, someone looking at this passage said, I think we just should ignore passages like that in the Bible and just read the New Testament passages, particularly the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly the passages that say that you should uh, turn the other cheek, but ignore these passages. Uh, One writer, one commentator, wrote a commentary on 1 and 2 Kings, uh, a liberal commentator. This is what he said. He said, and I quote, There is no serious point in this incident. It does not reflect much to the credit of the prophet. He went on to say, or or it may just be coincident that these two bears came out at that time. Doesn't reflect well on the prophet. No serious point to the incident. Well, not if we believe what we looked at a couple of weeks ago in 2 Timothy 3, that all scripture is God-breathed and is is useful for for teaching, for uh, rebuking, for correcting and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. No serious point. Doesn't reflect very well on the prophet. 
Friends, we can only come to that sort of a conclusion if we have a deficient view of who God is. If we have a deficient view of the sovereignty, of the holiness of God, and if we have too high a view of who we are as people. Because as we, someone said to me, let's not focus on the Old Testament, let's just focus on the New Testament. I want to suggest that we need to focus more on the Old Testament. I want to suggest that we need to read more of these kind of passages. And I want to encourage every one of us to be reading through the entire Bible. Um, if there is some of those one-year Bible reading plans are still available on the uh, table at the uh, Munster Street entrance. Because as we read through the whole of the Bible, as we read through the, the Old Testament, and think about books like Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, we learn of who God is. We learn that God is a holy God, that he is to be honoured, that he is to be obeyed, that he is to be feared because he is the creator of the entire universe. When we read through Leviticus and Deuteronomy and and Numbers, we we read about the establishment of the tabernacle and and that anyone who actually enters into the tabernacle when they shouldn't be, well, they have to die because they've set foot on holy ground. We are mere men. He is the mighty God, the creator who is to be revered, to be honoured and to be feared and to be loved and obeyed and trusted. He's not to be mocked. He's not to be treated as if he doesn't exist. He's not to be replaced. And as we read the Old Testament, we also learn to reject that to reject God's prophet is to reject God himself. And that there is such a thing as judgment. That judgment is not an idle threat, that judgment and punishment is a reality. Because he's a holy God. Now, we of course know about God's salvation and God's forgiveness, which is found in Jesus. But Israel knew of God's salvation. They knew of his deliverance from Egypt. They knew that he had brought them into the promised land. They'd even seen a clear demonstration on Mount Carmel as to who he is. And so there is a warning in this for us. Um, In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, we're told that the events of the Old Testament are, are recorded for a purpose. They're recorded for our benefit And the benefit is so that we don't become like them who knew salvation but turned away from it. So how could that happen for us? Well, let me just finish on what I think are two key issues that come from the passage. And the first one is this, that Israel refused to listen to God's spokesman, the prophet. So what about our attitude towards God's word? Do we take God's word seriously as we ought? 
God speaks to us through the scriptures. And so are we committed to reading the scriptures regularly, even daily? And when we do read the scriptures, do we take seriously what God says? Particularly when the scriptures do their work of rebuking us in order to correct us. When the scriptures speak to us about areas in our life that we need to change, do we take that seriously or not? And secondly and finally, do you remember the question that God put to King Azariah? The king was in trouble and so he went to Baalzebub for help. What was God's question? God's question to him, well, what's the problem? What's going on here? Why is it that you're going to Baal? Is there no God in Israel or something? It's a sarcastic question. And it's a question which we need to think about as well because we need to think about our own lives, the priorities that we have, the, uh, the goals that we set, uh, the ways that we behave and what we trust in in order to find solutions to our problems. Now think about it this way. Uh, if another person knew your life, would they say of you, there is a person in whom God lives by his spirit? Or would they say, or would they have just reason to say, what's the problem? Is there no God in your life that you seem to be living not any differently to other people around? That you turn to ungodly solutions for the problems in your life rather than turning to God praying and humbly submitting ourselves before him let's pray shall we Father we thank you that these passages in the scripture are recorded for our benefit and for our blessing for our warning we pray, Father God, that we would be people who are diligent in our reading and our obedience to your word. We pray, Father God, that um, it would be true of us, that people would be able to say that God is in that person's life. Help us not to have a low view of yourself. Help us to love you and value and cherish you and obey you as the sovereign creator and ruler of the universe. And may we be thankful to you for what you've done in saving us from our sin and from the judgment through the death and the resurrection of your own son. May we not forget that. May it be the basis of our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.